Welcome, everyone. Y'all here? Yeah. All right. Just checking. I, I see people, but uh, just want to check with my other senses, too. Uh, yeah. Glad y'all are here tonight. I hope you're uh, having a good week so far, and thank you for coming to meet together, fellowship, and uh, to study and pray together. And I hope tonight is a blessing to you. Let's pray before our God tonight. Our Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you for the love that you have shown to us. It is a boundless love that uh, we could hardly imagine. Uh, Lord, it is a love that is undeserved, that you have uh, graciously given to us from eternity past in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Father, now as your adopted sons and daughters, we come and we gather in your name uh, to worship you, uh, to fellowship together as the family of God. Uh, to learn more about you and your holiness and how we might draw near to you. And uh, Father, we pray that you would bless this time and may you be honored in all that we say and do. In Jesus' name, amen. Tonight we move into chapter 14 and chapter 15 of Created to Draw Near. And we're continuing to move forward step by step through the biblical story along this uh, theme of being God's priests and drawing near to God. And so we started that story back in Eden, how God made Eden to be uh, a place in which God would dwell and fellowship with his people, them near him and him near them in close fellowship and intimacy. But that how the fall of sin broke that relationship between Adam and Eve and God. And and separated God from all of humanity. And then beginning in Eden, even though there was judgment, even though there was punishment for their wrongdoing, yet that also began God's plan of redemption, of drawing sinners back into fellowship and harmony with himself and drawing them near again. And that plan of redemption began with God covering Adam and Eve with animal skins, making a sacrifice on their behalf and allowing them then uh, to live and to go forward and carry on the story that God was writing. And so we're moving forward in the story and we've been looking at Israel and some of the different um, ways that God is drawing his people near as a nation. Uh, last time we looked at Mount Sinai in particular and how God was drawing his people near uh, at Sinai, how he invited the people there to the base of the mountain. Uh, some of the elders were invited further up uh, to share a meal in the presence of God. And then Moses himself uh, drawn up to the summit, to the most holy place, if you will, to spend time with God and to receive his word. And then tonight we're looking at chapter 14 and 15, which is more specifically on the institution of the tabernacle, and its design, as well as the priesthood and the specific clothing and investiture that God told Moses that the priest should be adorned in. And so chapter 14 in God's house is about the tabernacle and its design. And so we read in Exodus 25, verse 8, God says to Moses, Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. And we learn later in the biblical story in the book of Hebrews that that pattern, 
that God showed Moses was based off of a heavenly reality, that the tabernacle on earth is a copy, if you will, a little microcosm, if you will, of God's heavenly sanctuary. And the, the pattern of the earthly tabernacle is based off that heavenly sanctuary. And God explains to Moses exactly how he wants it to be constructed. And so we've seen God's home manifested in different ways in the biblical story so far. Uh, we saw it in Eden, which was characterized by life and communion with God. And then we saw the people at Mount Sinai where God dwelt with his people. And what uh, was common in that instance was sacrifice and a meal of the elders of Israel in God's presence, communion with God and promises that God made to his people through Moses. But then we come to the tabernacle and the tabernacle is fascinating. And not too long ago, uh, we did a series of sermons on Sunday nights from the book of Exodus. And we walked through this passage that talks about the design of the tabernacle. And one of the amazing things about this is that this tabernacle and the way that it's described in Exodus provides us with the most detail of any of God's dwelling places that's recorded in scripture. I mean, you even look at Revelation, the final chapters of Revelation, where it talks about the new Jerusalem, uh, the new heavens, the new earth and streets of gold and gates. And it doesn't even, it's, it's quite descriptive, but not nearly to the detail that the tabernacle is, is it in Exodus? In Exodus, it is pretty intricately described in terms of its dimensions, shapes, measurements, the composition of all of the materials, how they were to be constructed. And so it provides us a lot of detail about this dwelling place of God. And as I mentioned, it is based on a heavenly pattern. And I thought this was interesting. He makes the statement in the chapter that God's people lived in tents moving from place to place. And so God too would dwell in a tent among them in their midst. And he too would lead them from place to place. And so God would dwell in the middle of his people. And we see this pattern and we've seen this throughout the book where in different uh, scenes of the story, we've kind of overlaid the tabernacle pattern over the top of it. Uh, this one is the tabernacle itself as it's described in Exodus 25 and following. And so we have the, the camp of Israel surrounding the courtyard. Uh, we have uh, a fence or a wall set up that's made of poles and, and fine linen, and that, that creates a courtyard. Inside that courtyard, the very first thing that you see is a bronze altar. And that altar is where the animals were slaughtered, where, where the animals were sacrificed. And it's interesting, isn't it, that that's the first thing you see when you come into God's presence. It's a reminder that for sinful people to be accepted with a holy God, sacrifice, substitution is required, the shedding of blood. And then we also see the laver uh, where uh, the priests would wash. They would wash their hands, wash their feet, and uh, symbolizing purity, uh, cleanliness, and then only the priests then were allowed to go into the holy place where uh, we see 
uh, three furnishings. We see the table of showbread, uh, which is um, uh, bread that was representative of the 12 tribes of Israel uh, because of the number of loaves that were there. And those would be replaced every Sabbath on a weekly basis. Uh, we see the lampstand, the altar of incense, and then you move into the, the innermost sanctuary, which is the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. And that is where the Ark of the Covenant is found. This um, kind of rectangular piece of furniture that inside of it had a bowl of manna, had uh, the tablets of the covenant law. Um, I believe one passage says it has uh, Aaron's rod in it that, that budded. Um, and so, and then on top of that Ark of the Covenant, we have this mercy seat where the blood would be sprinkled from the sacrifice on the day of atonement. And then overshadowing that we have two uh, gold shaped cherubim, two angels overshadowing that, which is symbolic of the heavenly presence of God. And so this is the most holy place where only the high priest could come and only once a year on the day of atonement. And so we see moving, like we saw last week, moving from the common to the holy, to the most holy, as we move in toward the center. This is God's home. This is God's dwelling place. And he says, God's home consisted of a tent surrounded by a courtyard, which was surrounded by the people of Israel. And then he says, and beyond them was the world that needed the God of Israel. And so Israel was to take God, his word, his presence, and extend it to the nations and to be a light unto the nations. And I think what we have in the tabernacle and some of the furnishings and the design of it, we see pictures of God's character. So several of the elements reveal certain things to us about God. One of those I think is royalty. Some of the just the composition of the materials, fine white linen, royal purples and blues and reds. And you have the most precious metals of gold, silver and bronze. And the closer that you get to the Holy of Holies, the, the more pure those metals, the more refined and the co more costly those metals had to be. And so the bronze altar is the furthest away. But then as you move closer, it moves toward silver and then gold in the most holy place. And so we see symbols of royalty, of God being the king of the universe. We see symbols of righteousness, uh, such as the bronze altar and the reminder that people needed to be forgiven and cleansed before going into God's house. We see the symbol of purity with uh, the laver, this basin where the priests would wash and ceremonially cleanse themselves before going into the presence of God. And so we, the, we see the, the purity of God's essence. Moving inside the tabernacle, we see God represented as light and life with um, the golden lampstand. And that golden lampstand was continually burning. And the priests would change that and, and keep that burning every day. And also the, the shape of the lampstand itself was reminiscent of the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. It was shaped like a tree and, and on the lampstand itself, it had these little blossoms and buds that gave a tree-like imagery 
symbolizing God is the light. He's the life of his people. Uh, We see God symbolized as a provider through the table of the bread of presence, the table of showbread, and, and symbolizes God's care for Israel, that he would provide for them uh, just as he provided for them for 40 years in the wilderness with bread, manna every single day. And also a symbol of God's divine hospitality, that this is his house. And when you're invited into a house, there is food, there is uh, sustenance provided. So God is provider. Uh, we see grace and beauty symbolized in the altar of incense where this uh, sweet smelling aroma would rise to the heavens. And that represented the prayers of God's people brought into the presence of God. And one of the things that's fascinating about the tabernacle is how it really engaged the senses to symbolize the beauty and the glory of the Lord. So you have visually uh, the beauty of the colors and the fine metals and the, the craftsmanship that went into the building of it. So you see the, the eyes engaged, you see the, the nose engaged with this sweet smelling aroma that is sent up uh, to the Lord. You have the ears engaged at different times through the blowing of trumpets or even through the animals that would be brought in for sacrifice. Um, and so we see all of the senses uh, engaged in the worship of the Lord, symbolizing his beauty. But also holiness and glory. As we move into the most holy place, it is symbolic of God's absolute set-apartness, his absolute holiness, and the Ark of the Covenant symbolizing his presence. It's as if it's like God's throne in his throne room, in the center of the tabernacle, representing holiness and glory. And that place was holy, so holy, that God allowed access to the high priest only once a year on the Day of Atonement. And even before he could have access, he had to be cleansed of his sins with a sacrifice before he could even come in and sprinkle the blood of atonement for the sins of the people. So it was representative of God's ultimate holiness. And that's where God's glorious presence came to dwell among his people as we saw earlier from that quote in Exodus 25, build a tabernacle, I will show you how to build it, and I will come and dwell with my people. And so he says the tabernacle was a visual representation of God's world, along with specific instruction on how his people were to come near. Each detail was intended to prepare humanity to recognize Jesus when he came and gathered all these details into himself. And so it's not an accident that John in John 1:14 specifically says that the eternal word became flesh and tabernacled among us. He was the presence of God in our midst. He was the light in life. He was the purity. He was the holiness and glory of God here in the flesh. And all of this is prefiguring that that would have its ultimate fulfillment in Christ. And then we see in chapter 15, the symbolism carried forward with the priests and the way that they were specifically clothed. And we see in Exodus, God make this comment that Moses and the craftsmen, they were to make the clothing for the priests for 
glory and for beauty, it says. In Exodus 28, verse 1 and 2, it says, Have Aaron, your brother, brought to you from among the Israelites, along with his sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, so they may serve me as priests. Make, make sacred garments for your brother Aaron to give him dignity and honor. Some translations have their for glory and for beauty. In other words, this is something that God wanted to honor these priests with because they were also coming into his presence. And so they were to be clothed with beauty and honor. And so God clothes us now as his people to make us beautiful and glorious to stand in his presence. Remember, this goes back several chapters, but back in Eden, we were talking about whether or not uh, it was God's intention all along to clothe us. And he brings that up again in this chapter where he says that God's intention was always to clothe us. And, and whether that was the intention at the beginning, it certainly is the intention after we have sinned. After we had fallen, after Adam and Eve fell into sin and their shame, their guilt was represented by their nakedness, God's intention then was to cover them and to make garments for them to make them acceptable in his presence. So starting with animal skins in the Garden of Eden, we see this theme running through scripture of God clothing his people, drawing them into his presence. Here we see the priests clothed with righteous, fine linen, white, pure, glorious, beautiful, so that they may stand in the presence of God. But then running through the whole biblical story, we even see in the end in Revelation that God's people are going to be wearing fine white linen, dressed in white, standing in the presence of God. And so God has designed our clothes and they will make us quite presentable. So if God makes the garments, then we can be accepted in his presence, can't we? It reminds me of Zechariah 3, where Joshua the high priest is standing there before God, and he's standing there in filthy garments, and Satan is accusing him, and God says, take off his filthy garments and put on him a new garment, a clean white garment representative of his sins being forgiven, his sins being removed and now welcomed into the presence of God and able to serve God as priest, as high priest in the presence of God. And again, like we saw with the tabernacle, where uh, certain aspects of it represent God's character, I think the priestly clothing here as well uh, displays certain characteristics. Uh, one is uh, certainly they were special, right? These are not your everyday garments. These are only for the priests. These are not for everyone. And these are not for the priests when they're out doing their chores in the field. These are only for the priests and only when they're doing their work of ministry in the presence of the Lord. So these are special. They're sacred. They're set apart. Uh, we see just the costliness of the materials that was used to make them very ornate, beautiful, uh, if you've ever seen a drawing or depiction of a high priest with his turban and the robes and the ephod and the, the, the breastplate plate, and it's, it's quite stunning. All these jewels and colors and the design and embroidery that went into it, very ornate and beautiful. 
but also holy. These garments represent and were intended to communicate holiness. Uh, One way we know that is because they are made of the same materials as the tabernacle itself. So you read the God's instructions to Moses about how to make the tabernacle and what he was supposed to use. Same exact kind of materials as the priestly clothing were to be made out of. Same kind of fine linen, same kind of of yarn, finely woven. And also on the turban, the headpiece of the priest, we have this plate that specifically says, holy to the Lord, set apart, consecrated unto God. And so these garments represent their sacredness, the, the costliness, the specialness of them, but also the holiness of those who wear them. And he says, this is really symbolic of what God wants all of us to be. He says, image bearers, human beings, were the ones intended to represent God most accurately. The tabernacle indeed reflected his glory, but walking living tabernacles were always the plan. And here he's referring to the priests because the priests were wearing the exact same materials, the cloth that the tabernacle was made out of. He says the priests were like walking tabernacles, representative of God's presence. And he says we can carry that forward into the New Testament. The priestly coverings pointed to the spirit-filled tabernacles that were to come when we would all be made holy in Jesus Christ. And so we read in the New Testament that we as believers are the temple of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are tabernacles. So these This clothing represents uh, sacredness, holiness, but also the clothing shows the representative nature of the priestly role. That when the priests donned these garments and served before the Lord, they were doing so on behalf of others. They were doing so for the people of God. And several reminders of that, most notably, On the shoulder pieces, they had these stones that were engraved with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. On the 12 stones on the breastplate, each of them had a name of one of the tribes of Israel engraved on it. And so as the priest ministered, he was continually reminded that he was representing the people. And he says the high priest carried the people everywhere, even into the most holy place. And so he went into the most holy place on their behalf, carrying their needs, their sins, and atoning for them before the Lord. So this clothing represents holiness, uh, the representative nature of the priesthood standing on behalf of others. Uh, It also represents wisdom in the Urim and the Thummim, these two stones as a part of the the ephod that uh, represented wise judgment in consultation with the Lord's will. They, the priests would use these stones uh, in consultation with the Lord to determine what the Lord wanted them to do. Represented wisdom, discernment. And he makes this statement that the image of God in humanity was being restored. The discernment and wisdom that was lost at Eden was available now because God was with his people. And so wisdom and discernment lost in the fall, but now God is granting his people wisdom and discernment again through his word, through the commandments, but also through his presence with, through the priesthood in the midst of his people. 
So wisdom, holiness, royalty, we see in the turban. It's kind of like a royal crown-like uh, a piece of, of clothing. Uh, represents the royal nature of the priest that would be fulfilled in Christ, ultimately, who is both priest and king, isn't he? In all of these institutions of Israel, in Moses as prophet, in Aaron as priest, in David as king, all of those are fulfilled in Christ. He is prophet, priest, and king. And he says, when you take a step back and kind of look at it in the whole, it becomes clear the priestly garment mimicked the tabernacle. The priest was a living version of the tabernacle. The priest and the tabernacle both imaged God, represented God. And so we get kind of some insight then into this statement in Psalm 84. He says, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. That's how much the psalmist, uh, how much he elevated being near the presence of God and worshiping him in his courts. He says, kind of closing out the chapter with a few quotes here. He says, the priests were blessed to be attendants at God's residence, but their presence there pointed to a much greater reality. His presence with his people would be so intimate that he would actually reside within them. So God in the midst of this camp of Israel is really just a foretaste of God living in inside his people through the Holy Spirit. He says, we look ahead and see that we are both singularly and corporately living tabernacles and a tabernacle is where God resides with his people. So we come to the New Testament and what he means by singularly and corporately is singularly as an individual, I as a believer in Christ am a temple, a tabernacle of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. So as an individual believer in Christ belonging to God, I am a temple of the Holy Spirit. And Paul reminds the Christians there in Corinth that. Uh, of their solemn responsibility to live holy lives before the Lord because they're a tabernacle, a temple of God. But then he also said corporately, and there's another passage that I didn't put on the screen, but 1 Corinthians 3, uh, Paul makes a statement to the Corinthians there. He says, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, but the you that he uses there is plural. We can't easily show that in English because we just say you, unless you're from the South and you can say you all, right? But in Greek, it makes a distinction between you singular and you plural. And in 1 Corinthians 3, he says, you plural, you all are collectively the temple of the Holy Spirit. Meaning when you come and gather together, you're God's tabernacle, where God's spirit dwells in the midst. And so we have in this picture of the priesthood, God dwelling within us, among us, the Father over us, Jesus with us, and the Spirit in us. 
all this intimacy is now in view in the priestly story. So the tabernacle, the priesthood, the special uh, materials and the design of the tabernacle, the special materials and the making of the priestly clothing, it all communicates something about people in the presence of God. But it's all really pointing forward to something more climactic, isn't it? That would ultimately be fulfilled in Christ. Jesus says, I am the temple. You can tear this temple down in three days, I'll rise it up again, because he's the temple. He is God in the flesh, in our midst. So Jesus is the temple. And then as we are in Jesus, as we are in Christ, we also too collectively as the church become a temple of the Holy Spirit, where God's spirit dwells. And so it's all pointing forward toward uh, a more, a, a closer intimacy between God and his people. And even though we don't have all of the ceremonies and the a central place of worship, like in Jerusalem, like they did in the Old Testament, in many ways, we have so much more than they had because we have the gift of the Holy Spirit. Something new happened with the coming of Christ and his death, resurrection from the grave and his ascending to heaven. Something new and totally radically new came with the Holy Spirit at that point. Because Jesus says, if I don't go away, the Holy Spirit will not come to you. And so he had to go away. And then in his going away, though, he blessed us with the Holy Spirit that we now have as a constant abiding presence in our lives. We are a continual tabernacle of the Lord, God with us. And that is solemn and inspiring of awe on the one hand, but it's also incredibly comforting as well, isn't it? That God is always with us. And as David writes in Psalm 139, there's nowhere where we can go and God is not with us. He is there everywhere. And so we have been drawn near. God is drawing near to us and he is drawing us near to him. And uh, so as we continue to walk through this story, hopefully the, the light of it will continue to grow more and more and as we see this theme unfold uh, and, and what it means for us and our relationship with God and how we view our relationship with God and how we view prayer and how we view worship and how we view our, our role and responsibility before a lost world. And so I'm hoping that we'll continue to grow in our understanding of these truths. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much for blessing us with this opportunity to learn uh, from your word tonight. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to go through this study together and to be reminded of uh, truths that maybe we have learned before, but also maybe to encounter some new things that we haven't seen before in scripture that uh, remind us and teach us of how your purpose has always been uh, to be our God and to dwell among us and for us to dwell in your presence. So Lord, remind us of that truth and, and may we rejoice in it. And may we also long for the day in hope uh, when we will see Christ face to face and be in your presence forevermore. 
God, thank you for blessing your people. May we be your representatives and your priests before the world. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.